Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're getting a little Shakespearean because we're going to be discussing multiple different adaptations of the Scottish play. Confusion now hath made his masterpiece. That's what I say. I don't know if the emphasis was on the right syllables there, Will. Ah, damn it. I will be the non-expert on this podcast because while I, like many students, were forced to do Shakespeare in high school, and I think I took a university class on his work, nothing, or their work, nothing (laughs) has been absorbed at all in me when it comes to Shakespeare. How about you, Will? Uh, That's right, because we all know, of course, that all the plays were really written by Francis Bacon or uh, someone else, right? Of course. If Roland Emmerich says so, then I believe it. Yeah, Shakespeare, I like him. I think he's a good guy. When I was growing up, my late parents would always take me to Stratford or to High High Park to see like whatever the comedy they were playing in the summer was. My parents, uh, God love them, God rest their souls, always felt that it was uh, somehow frivolous or something to go see like the musicals at Stratford. You had to go see you had to go see the Shakespeare plays when you were at Stratford. So there's another Rosetta Key moment to unlocking why I'm I'm the awful person that I am is because I, I grew up like that. You- You just made me realize that I had seen a Shakespeare play in Toronto outdoors and it was a big production that I had completely forgotten about that I saw like a Midsummer's Night Dream. But I'm sure I sat there smiling, watching and then left going, man, I didn't get much out of that. I mean, look, the language is hard. The language is hard for me. It's hard for you. It's hard for everyone. Shakespeare on film can be easier. Like I like putting on the subtitles and reading the language as it goes along. The language really comes alive for me that way, because oftentimes the lines are spoken in that kind of Yoda way where things are said out of normal order. Listen, they got to get to those 10 syllables to make this work. So he's going to add a bunch in. Yeah. And when you see them on the screen, you can realize, oh, okay, that's what it means. Gee, that's quite beautiful. That's very, that's very poetic language. Good job, Shakespeare. Do you know how many sayings Shakespeare himself invented? Click on this top 20 list to find out. I got to say, every time I see a Shakespeare play, I am always blown away anew by, oh, that's where that line came from from tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing you know you hear that in macbeth and it's like oh it came from macbeth how about that shakespeare was canonized and he's gonna stay canonized until we're all in our graves (laughs) no new playwrights only shakespeare uh shakespeare on film to me it's an interesting topic because these are obviously great plays and they were built for the stage so i think there's always been something sort of irreconcilable about adapting them to film which makes it sort of an interesting challenge. Don't say that. Kenneth Bragna is going to come crashing through the wall. <laughs> Soliloquies, for example. Like, how do you film a soliloquy naturally on film? If you're Orson Welles or you're Roman Polanski, you do it by just having the actor stare off into the distance and it's hushed a voiceover. Which is also what Laurence Olivier would do. In his Hamlet, there were so many scenes of like his brooding face, like stroking his chin as you heard his thoughts on the sound soundtrack. There are also plays that obviously came out of Elizabethan England. The dialogue is written in a style of English that's difficult for a lot of us to follow. But of course, the poetry of Shakespeare's language is essential to their greatness. So it's interesting to see the many strategies that filmmakers use to adapt the plays for reasons of both art and commerce. Watching these movies made me think a lot about 
just the art or the reason for adaptation. You know, Shakespeare, he continues to be performed all over the world. And I totally understand the power of seeing someone up on stage, you're in the audience, he's doing the full text, and you're just being blown over by what you're seeing. But a lot of the times when I see, you know, movie adaptations of really famous texts, the first question on my mind, and this is for me personally, I'm only speaking for myself, is why are you making this? <laughs> like, beyond, all right, we're going to put a really good, like the good version of this. I always feel like that the artist needs to bring something more to what you know, they're putting on screen. And I kind of filter the movies that we watched through that lens. I think that's a great point. And I certainly did as well. And the reason why Macbeth is such an interesting topic to discuss is because I've always liked the idea of Macbeth as being the Shakespeare play that the great directors try their hand at. And that's because there have been three very prominent adaptations by Orson Welles, Akira Kurosawa, and Rowan Polanski, which are all very different from each other, and which all have a lot of that particular auteur's personality in them. They're like these three examples of, they're like three corners of a triangle in a way, of equal parts Shakespeare and the personality of that auteur getting into the machine from the fly together. I almost feel that if that kind of personality or perspective is not present in the film, I think well, I might as well just be watching a, you know, film stage play to get like the true raw power out of it. I think Macbeth also definitely lends itself to film more than most Shakespeare plays. It's the shortest of the tragedies. It's very compact. It's dense with iconic scenes. It's also structured kind of like a movie. It's a five-act play, but it's really got three acts that you can set your watch to, you know? And it's got that sweet, sweet violence in it, too. Like, you know those high points that are going to be hit. It's got witches right off the bat, so you know there's going to be a little bit of weirdness in there. It's got murder. I mean, it's all the bloodiness is what you think of when you think of Macbeth. And you can understand why a filmmaker, or even us, are like, all right, these are the adaptations that I want to see because there's that visceral power there right on the surface. It's also a play that even among Shakespeare plays has proven itself really open to such wildly different interpretations. For example, should Macbeth be a young striver? Or should he be an old man who sees one last chance for power? I mean, both approaches have been tried with equal success, and they're radically different. Should he be Scottish? Orson Welles said, eh, in the 1947 version, sure, in his 1950 recut and redub of Macbeth, eh, not so much. Or yeah, could it be in feudal Japan for that matter? I mean, whatever. It's a, a wildly malleable text. And that's what I like about the adaptation that moved me as much as they did is that you need to bring something to it that's not just like, we made it realistic. There's got to be like a voice there. And, you know, very bad man, Roman Polanski, for a long time, people said he made the definitive version of Macbeth. Now, we did not watch Orson Welles or Akira Kurosawa's version for this podcast. Although we've, of course, seen them before. And I'm a big fan of Orsi Welles' version. <laughs> Orsi Welles'. I'll talk about that a little bit later because it links directly to another film that we watched for this podcast. Can I just tell the folks, like, maybe you don't know what we're talking about, but let's say, let's say it's 11th century Scotland and you've got a heroic soldier named Macbeth. He's just helped the Scots triumph over the Norse and the Irish in battle, and in gratitude, the king has named him Thane of Cawdor. But let's say the next day, Macbeth and his friend Banquo stumble upon three witches, you know how it is, 
They tell him that Macbeth will one day be king and Banquo will have a fortune that is both better and worse than Macbeth's. Well, ambition is going to start to cloud Macbeth's judgment. Oh, also, the witches are going to drop three cryptic hints that, will anybody in the audience be able to figure out what they mean? Uh, imagine that you've got a shrew of a wife who's egging on your ambitions. Pretty soon, you're the king of Scotland, and uh, it's it's one foul up after another after that. Oh, no, nah, I'm seeing the bloody ghost of the person that I had murdered. Oh, boy. Oh, so yes, the 1971 Roman Polanski version. What everyone knows about this movie is that this is the one that Polanski made after the murder of his wife, Sharon Tate. And it's also produced by Playboy? That's right. This was uh, Playboy Magazine's or Playboy Enterprise's brief foray into film production. They also produced the Monty Python movie and now for something completely different around the same time. And it was written also by Kenneth Tynan, the great playwright who Polanski recruited because he had a really encyclopedic knowledge of Shakespeare. And I vividly remember a teacher talking about this movie in class and selling it as, you know, it's a little dry on the page, but in this movie version, it gets a little bloody. And they're not wrong (laughs) that it feels very miserable and just, you know, there's a weight to it all that is defined from the beginning by the rolling fog that comes in and becomes kind of the backbone of the entire picture. Yeah, the movie has two sorts of settings. It's either these cold and clammy Scottish exteriors that are very muddy and foggy and miserable, or it's these also cold and clammy castle interiors where everything's very claustrophobic. You know, those uh, claustrophobic scenes that Polanski is so known for. And that violence that the film is famous for is even impactful when you watch it now, even though I did laugh a little bit that during the uh, murder of the king, there's a little bit of stop motion when he gets stabbed in the neck. I mean, I remember the first time I saw this movie uh, a very, very long time ago, like I'd been hyped up to hear that it was like, oh, this is the bloodiest Macbeth. And I remember thinking, oh, that's it. The guy gets hit with the mace at the beginning of bunch and he gets a little bit meaty. See, I'm much more sensitive to violence now that I'm an older, wiser man, because I saw that mace scene again this time. And I was I was cringing. It's like, oh, God. That's really unpleasant. It's like a Mondo movie or something. You also have to consider that I remember watching this movie in a very fuzzy, crappy looking VHS that in, you know, you could assume that maybe it would help the presentation, but just made it feel cheaper than it does when you watch it all remastered. Yeah, yeah. No, I had I had the same experience for the first time watching it in class, of course. Where else would you see it for the first time? Notes being passed between you and your friends. <laughs> Little doodles, I assume. Everybody getting uh, excited when there was ever a flash of nudity, whether it was the witches or Lady Macbeth or whoever. And somehow it was stretched over like three days. <laughs> stretched over three days, and the teacher spends half the class rewinding and fast-forwarding to try to get the right place in the VHS tape because they're showing it to two different classes. Anyway, speaking of the violence, as I said, everyone knows that this is the movie that Polanski made right after the murder of Sharon Tate. And in the original critical reception of the film, critics were overwhelmingly focused on this fact. I know that Polanski himself, I've seen him interviewed about the film, and he said he wants to discourage a sort of one-to-one comparison between the two events. He said that he wasn't so much working out his issues with the murder through the movie as he wanted to make a movie after that event that was sufficiently serious. He didn't think it was a time for uh, an unserious, silly movie. I don't think Polanski is particularly in touch with himself because I'm going to psychoanalyze him. I think that scene, you know, the scene where Macduff's family is killed 
you know, when the killers barge into their room and like surround them and sort of sadistically toy with them before slaughtering them. I mean, you cannot not think of the Manson family when you see that. I think Polanski would say, I'm a bad man. He would say, stop reminding me of this traumatic moment of my life. Also, please don't tell people where I am. I'm going to be arrested again. (laughs) He'd say, there's no extradition in this country. There's no extradition (laughs) treaty. I would say on this viewing, you know, I actually just watched Polanski's The Pianist again a couple weeks ago. And uh, the violence in both movies struck me as very similar. Like, they're both set in very violent worlds, just worlds where violence and brutality are almost mundane facts of life and there's just an air of death and decay in in both films and again i'm going to psychoanalyze them more you can see that both movies are the product of somebody who spent some of his childhood in the krakow ghetto you look at so many scenes in the movie of people just hanging being hanged the act is violent and there's a snap when they land and then you know a couple minutes later that person's still hanging there it's not a big deal it's just a part of life like you said How can you live otherwise? And that's how it would have been in the ghettos, yeah, where Polanski grew up under Nazi occupation. And uh, he is, I think, one of the most, I don't know if cynical is the right word, but, you know, one of the most black-pilled film directors. He's very unsentimental. And the violence in this movie and others is just, it's more disturbing for being so, so unexceptional. I would also say that as far as adaptations go of the Shakespearean text, this one is very clear, like about all the beats that are happening, about the kind of relationships from point A to point B, which I can't say for every version of the movie that we watch, that if a familiarity with the text wasn't one that I had, I'd be like, what's happening now? What's going on? It's true. This one feels very cinematic. It feels like it was written to be a movie. I mean, few directors are such confident stylists as him. He's very good at using the camera to unsettle you without you ever quite noticing it. He's also just very good at opening up the play, making it feel like a movie and not stage bound. And what do you think of the performances in the film? Like, when you think of Macbeth, do you have a particular, like, you know, voice in your mind? Is it Orson Welles? Is it maybe Patrick Stewart? You know, it probably is Patrick Stewart, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine a bellowing Shakespearean voice who really knows how to do the iambic pentameter. I don't necessarily think of John Finch, who plays Macbeth in this movie. Like, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are so young in this movie that they come across as children and they're very consciously ciphers just because that the events you know run through them as opposed to being defined by them yeah and i've i've seen critics remark on the film that there are some adaptations where the Macbeths seem very Machiavellian, whereas in this movie, they seem like they're kind of making it up as they go along. They're they're dumb kids who make a mistake and then get stuck with the consequences. And that's what I love about adaptation of Shakespeare plays is like, what is going to be your perspective on it? And how can you make this play kind of sing in a way that's not like, oh, look at, you know, the way that we set up the scene. Isn't it wild how we did it? Okay, so moving on, we did not watch Men of Respect, the 1990 John Turturro starring mafia version of Macbeth, nor did we watch Rave Macbeth from 2001 or the Australian Sam Worthington 2006 Macbeth that looks like an underworld film, but it's not. Nor did we attend a performance of McHomer. Do you remember McHomer? No. Yeah, there was a guy, I think this was a Canadian phenomenon. There was a guy who would go from town to town. Like it was kind of a big deal in the, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s. Whatever you 
your newspaper art section was at the time was all over this. He would do a performance of Macbeth doing all the voices from The Simpsons. And uh, you can look up a video of it online and it's a little a little cringe inducing, I have to say. I do like the voices from The Simpsons. I think I would get tired of it fairly fast, though. We both did watch, though, the Michael Fassbender Macbeth from 2015. This ain't your daddy's Macbeth, right, That's Will? right. So many of the great auteurs have tackled this play. Uh, Kurosawa, Polanski, Wells, uh, Justin Kurtzel. Director of Assassin's Creed. Oh, God. Um, well, anyway, th- this is a film de Kurtzel. Yeah, I mean, we, we picked this one, I think, because we both heard not very good things about it, so we wanted to talk about a bad one. Is that fair to say? No, I, I thought people liked this movie. And looking at Letterboxd, yeah, it's pretty kind of average across the board. And I was interested in the idea of, hey, man, let's make it realistic. But what that means is let's make it look like a Ridley Scott film, which is a very particular brand of realism. The most interesting thing about the movie is the opening scene because it opens at the funeral for Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's dead child. Now, this is not in any other adaptation of the play. Uh, The play itself makes some cryptic reference to either they have an inability to conceive or they maybe they had a dead child but yeah maybe Lady Macbeth has a barren womb or something like that no other adaptation makes it so clear in the opening scene this is a couple who are who are doing this during the grieving process for their dead child so that's like sort of an interesting touch and the other touch is that hey there's fight scenes in this one (laughs) and yeah they're pretty generic and boring so not much to say about that It's got that 300 look, you know, the slow-mo sword fight shit. The promise of it being like a realistic handheld Macbeth is kind of given away as the movie plays on to the point that the climax happens in like a big CGI fire looking thing. And I was like, is this the climax of Jonah Hex? What's going on here? I think what's funny about this movie is that it seems like an attempt to almost reboot the play like a piece of intellectual property yeah like Macbeth untold yeah exactly and uh, I gotta say I didn't enjoy this movie I felt that the tone was just sort of dreary and drab throughout it's like the grimmest most self-important version of one of those HBO shows like Rome or something like Vikings yeah yeah and it's like every scene of the movie is saying like this is so important this is so tragic whereas you look at the Polanski movie, and obviously that's a very grim and tragic movie, but it doesn't insist upon itself quite so much. Like, it, it allows for some uh, moderation of its tone throughout. But I can understand the filmmakers and people that like it kind of reacting to the idea of, all right, this is done in a language that is very specific to the time of its release and will age like milk if you watch it in like 20 years. I watch it in six years years. I mean, <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah, this is what we were big fans of at the time. And Michael Fassbender as Macbeth, he does the thing that I'm like, why? He's like a very sleepy Macbeth, <laughs> like a very sad Macbeth, but in a way that I never connected with. Yeah, I thought he and both Marianne Cotillard were kind of disappointing. I thought that not only were they uh, really sort of understated, but I thought they were pretty one note throughout. And then you got Patty Constantine just standing off on the sidelines, who should be Macbeth instead of Fassbender. I liked seeing David Thewlis as King Duncan. You know, I mean, this 
movie is packed with, you know, uh, famous, mostly British actors. You got Sean Harris, who has now been trapped in the hell of being the villain in the Mission Impossible movies. I was kind of with this movie for the first 30 minutes just because I was amused by the novelty of it. They're intense, not a castle when the king gets killed. It's always interesting in these movies to see like, what are the changes that they make, big big or small? Like, in this one, King Duncan's son sees him being murdered, for instance, and you you don't get the porter in this version. But, you know, such small pleasures do not go along with Now, the main reason that we picked this movie uh, for this podcast was because it gave me and Will a reason to watch The Tragedy of Macbeth, the film directed by the Soul Cohen brother. That's right. Mr. Joel Cohen split up for the time being from his brother Ethan. Who knows? In interviews, he said, yeah, Ethan just wouldn't be interested in this. So that's why I did it on my own. So this movie which I was disappointed by. Oh, yeah, me too. But I was so excited when it was coming out. I'm like, I cannot wait to see what Joel's going to do with this material. Can you imagine the Coen brothers tackling Shakespeare? They got to have something to say if they're doing this old hoary thing, right? I was excited for it too, because again, it felt like, oh, a new great director for the lineage of great directors. Wells, Kurosawa, Polanski, Coen. And in a bad way, This movie feels to me like the work of a filmmaker with nothing left to prove. Reading about it, it made a lot more sense that Frances McDormand, who's the wife of Joel Cohen, she had done Macbeth 10 years earlier. And it almost seems like he wanted to do the movie to give her a chance to put a performance on screen, something that she never got to do because the Shakespearean company like didn't want to cast her in any of the major stage plays. And from that perspective, we're like, oh, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Because from a visual standpoint, this movie's like, like, all right, it's like a, you know, fancy stage version put to screen. And that's pretty much it. Well, the most obvious reference point for this movie is the Wells version. The Wells version from 1947 was shot at a Poverty Row studio, Republic Pictures, on a fairly low budget in 23 days, which was much below the usual shooting schedule. And so it wears its low budget on its sleeve. It's proudly artificial. It looks like a stage play. Oh, and it's beautifully shot as well. And And even though it looks like a stage play, its impact could only be done through cinema, choice of angles, editing, camera movement. That's right. It doesn't look like a stage play in the way that a Laurence Olivier Hamlet looks like a stage play, where it's like, plant the camera down and let the actors recite the text. Orson Welles' Macbeth is very much like, it looks like it's shot on a stage, but it's very cinematic. While the... Joel Cohen version looks like it was shot on an artificial stage. It also, so many odd choices go into this movie to make me like not be able to connect with it, whether it be Denzel Washington doing like a mumbly, seemingly uncommitted Macbeth, the Apple-ish kind of feel to it all. Like he shot it in black and white, which only makes me think of the Orson Welles version. And It has no texture because of that, so it's completely shorn of any kind of, you know, feeling of aliveness. And maybe he would argue that's why he made that choice, but I just could not get into it. It's artificial looking, but the Orson Welles version, like it's infused by a palpable love of the theater. It's infused by a palpable love of the texture of props and, you know, fake swords and uh, chain mail and all that kind of stuff. But you also know that in the Welles version, like that 
studio is just covered in dirt. <laughs> it's disappointing that textureless quality. It like yeah, it feels like it's set at the Apple store or something. And I agree with you about Denzel Washington's performance. I mean, he's fine. He's not bad, but like he's not pulling me forward when he does his Macbeth. I mean, when I heard he was playing Macbeth, I was very excited. I thought I was like, who better to play like the charismatic guy who just goes too far and loses it? Oh man, Denzel, he's all in. It's funny. We've seen Denzel be hammy so many times, and if ever there were an opportunity to be hammy, like, come on, make it this. It almost feels like Denzel decided, I'm not going to give them what they expect. I'm going to go in a completely opposite direction. And you want to be like, play to your strengths, Denzel. Play to your strengths. When you hear that one of the Coen brothers is making a Macbeth, you think, well, maybe they're going to try to go for some of the wry comedy in the play, or they're going to put a sort mm-hmm. of darkly comic slant hey, on it. Hey, Stephen Root's here playing the porter. That's fun. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the traditional comedy relief scene of the play. Uh, but the rest of the play just is not comic at all. And it's like, well, okay, that's a fair choice. But in the absence of that, why did he want to do this? And it just kind of feels like he decided... I'd like to take a class in Shakespeare for a year. I can imagine the Coen brothers version of Macbeth. And like you said, leaning on the comedy, almost being satirical in this quest for power and the way it self-destructs. But that's not really here in this movie version. Yeah, it's funny because like the play lends itself, you know, the Coen's filmography is so full of idiot schemers and people who try to do something illegal and then it blows up in their face and yeah he doesn't do that here and i just have to emphasize again that the visual sheen of this film just completely threw me off the film ends with like a bunch of crows flying away or ravens and i was like is this like dracula untold like what's going on (laughs) unless this is satirical this movie is too competent that's my biggest complaint it is ruthlessly competent throughout you can't really argue that any element of it is bad but nothing is inspired can you imagine if ethan cohen's like i have my own version of macbeth i'm making now too i oh you know me i'd watch it i would probably watch it too but this is a text that will continue to be adapted again and again and i'm very curious if there's another definitive version that could be brought to the screen was the perspective that we have not seen. I say, yes. What filmmaker would you like to see do one? Alex Ross Perry. Uh, not bad. I'm going to say Werner Herzog. Why not? Uh, yeah, sure. Has he done any Shakespearean Too stuff? Too old, past his prime. Wait, who would you cast in the main role? Uh, Klaus Kinski, I guess, but I guess he's passed away. Yeah. Well, no, he's dead. <laughs> so realistically. Uh, Nicolas Cage. Why not? Uh, I was going to say Nick Cage. That's like the go-to, right? But then you know you get like a mumbly, non-present Cage. You're like, ah, oh, no, yeah, again. It depends on... Depends on the director, I say. Yeah, what is another major director? Hey, uh, come on, Scorsese, do some Shakespeare. It's just like, you know, a period gangster film. I'm now a seventh grade teacher trying to, you know, sell it to my uh, bored and, you know, uninterested class. There you have it. A podcast told by two idiots full of sound and fury. Signifying nothing. As per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Sydney Jenkins. Now... Uh, This is a very long letter, but as the person mentioned in the letter, uh, you can cut this down a little bit. Lots of recommendations. They really want us to talk about um, Nick Rogue, specifically Eureka. Have you ever seen that movie, Will? I actually have not. I'm sorry. So the letter goes, Eureka is a masterpiece to me, but many would disagree strongly. The same goes for something like Bound for Glory, directed by Hal Ashby. I don't really watch films, but I have rewatched these films many, many times, and I can't help but be drawn 
drawn back to them. This urge to be compelled back to watch something as it won't get out of my head is interesting to me because I don't have the urge to, with a lot of what I will call popular cinema. Sorry to sound pretentious, but I've come to the conclusion that certain films are like music, and I think this is why I have to rewatch them. It is like revisiting a piece of music that plays on in your mind after you have finished listening to it. Nicholas Rogue and Robert Altman's films have the special quality of them. Monty Hellman has it. Most of Ashby's and Renez. Director's Cut of Wild Side is like that. And Donald Camel's White of the Eye. A few more filmmakers I'm not thinking of right now. I think it's definitely something to do with the director and his overall vision. I mean, I think we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, right, Will? The idea of, like, what you consider a masterpiece, something that moves you deeply, is not qualified as, like, a 10 out of 10 on cinema scores. Or, or no, wait, cinema scores is letter grade? I don't know. Uh, oh, yeah, that survey that they do. That they um, do in, like, Las Vegas or something like that to people that come out. I always hear podcasts mentioned, and I'm like, I've never checked that in my entire life. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on mic before, but I did once take part in a cinema score survey. Did you? Yes, I went to see The Artist on opening weekend in Manhattan, and they gave me a sheet to fill out. And I think I gave it a B minus. <laughs> and they're like, I think we got some Oscar potential right here. That's me. And that went directly to Harvey Weinstein's office. I always hear people talk about like, listen, uh, you know, 10 out of 10 movies aren't necessarily my favorite films. And it's like, yeah, then don't rate them that way. Rate them in your opinion of like what you think of them and how it moves you specifically. Don't rate them on some universal scale because that doesn't really mean that much if it's just coming from an individual. I increasingly don't don't like to give movies star ratings. I know, because you don't want people picking fights with you. Uh, well, hang on. I disabled the comments on Letterboxd, so that's not going to happen anyway. Oh, did you? Of all your reviews? Yeah, I did. And and uh, wow. my mental health has improved so much. Oh, so you don't see the comments that I write on your reviews? I'm like, well, well, look at me. Uh, my mutuals can see. Ah, uh, okay. Sorry, folks. I found that recently I've been writing reviews of big movies and people like to jump in the comments to argue with me about how I'm wrong. And my strategy of that is to not respond. Yeah, sorry. I don't need... I don't need that shit. I don't need to be told by a complete stranger that I'm wrong. That's my take. I gave West Side Story three stars. That's a pretty good review. What else do you want from me? My plot? Yeah, this is not a democracy. This is a dictatorship. As I was saying, I increasingly don't like to rate movies because... I don't know. If you if you show me a movie like I'm just picking movies at random. It could be the opening of Misty Beethoven. It could be Citizen Kane. It could be Tenement. It could be Murders in the Rue Morgue. It could be White Zombie. It could be Scarface. Those are just a bunch of movies at random. Are they five stars? Are they four stars? Does it matter? That's my question. It only matters to me. And this is when I made a decision that I almost want to review every movie I watch. Because I can look at it and just seeing the star rating will trigger in my mind what I thought about it. And be like, oh, yeah, that's what my opinion of that movie was. That's a good point. I would say that when I see a four and a half star rating that I've given, I say, why didn't I just give it a five? And then sometimes I'll see a four star rating and I'll say, why didn't I just give it a five? Come on. If it's like... Basically, it's either worth watching or, or it isn't. That's that's how I feel. Ah, old man Will <laughs> getting to this point in his life. <laughs> the old thumbs up, thumbs down. That's the only system I prescribe to. So yeah, if it's a masterpiece in your mind, that's all. Doesn't matter conventional wisdom. You don't care about anybody else out there. <laughs> Just think of yourself and your friends and family. Because what are, what are these objective standards you're grading against? They don't exist. Yeah, the Godfather? Come on, man. <laughs> Uh, didn't Francis Ford Coppola say like, yeah, I'm a pretty good director. I don't understand why everybody holds up the godfather of the gold standard. Well, I mean, that was one that he did like for hire, basically. I don't think that was a movie that was even all that close to his heart. Unlike Jack. <laughs> 
<laughs> or the Rainmaker, his true passion projects. Yeah. And our next letter is from Kevin Barr. And he goes, I'm currently taking a class on minimalist cinema from Robert Bresson to Céline uh, Schiama, which is funny because most of the thesis is going to be based on exploitation cinema. So I've been struggling to find a topic that would fit my other studies when I came up with a theory, drive-in minimalism. These would be films made for drive-ins or even flophouse audiences where the producers either had such little money or did not care enough. Inadvertently, their films gained such an austere and esoteric style that they end up more akin to the more outre work of Kiristami than a Jack Arnold joint. Obviously, you could include burlesque, nudist camp, and nudie cutie genre films where they hang uh, extended scenes of minimal nudity over the most threadbare or non-existent framework. But I'm especially interested for when the stuff gets foisted upon unsuspecting genre crowds such as Monster Gogo, The Creeping Terror, or even Sam Newfield's extended scenes of rock climbing and Lost Continent. Which leads me to the subject line. Could Coleman Francis be an unsung minimalist master? <laughs> Certainly, The Beast of Yucca Flats is so minimal there's hardly any on-screen dialogue, but his other two films, Red Zone Cuba and Skydivers, also eschew traditional skills for a more sullen, contemplative attitude that I imagine would have most teenage couples speeding away from the screen. What do you think of the work of this man? Could it be an unintentional master of film minimalism, or is he just another hack? Keep up the good work, Kevin. That's a good question. Here's what I'll say to that. No disrespect to Coleman Francis, but when you watch Coleman Francis's movies, please say what effect that minimalism produces and why, and why is it good? Ask yourself that question, because I feel like I can do it with Sai Ming Lang and I can do it with Abbas Kiarostami. Or the Killer Shrews. Or Killer Shrews. But like, <laughs> can I make a case for Coleman Francis's minimalism on its own terms and a case that's not just like, isn't it amazing that this exists? I don't know if I could, but maybe you could. I think it's maybe the idea of stripped down because the filmmaker did not care that much or thought that this was enough. It gains emotion or meaning from the emptiness of these actions. A lot of them, you know, mostly genre based, not having those thrills. And I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who I've never seen a Coleman Francis film because I am not MST3K pilled. Oh, well, you should watch uh, Red Zone Cuba. I know that um, our good friend John Carradine sings a song over the opening credits, which I have heard. I mean, Beast of Yucca Flats, too. I mean, that's a that's an infamous one. That's a classic. I confuse Beast of Yucca Flats with that other film that was made by uh, like Art House guy what which one am i thinking of it's the big goat man that's uh something weird put it out oh sorry agfa the god monster of indian flats and that one's interesting because it has that really weird feel to it because its director was like an experimental artist so it's that you know interplay of is this just a genre movie that is incompetently made or is it a director trying to approach things from a different perspective if manos the hands of fate is a horror movie i do think there's something about its very slow slow pace that gives it a dreamlike ambiance that is accidentally kind of unsettling and kind of powerful i feel like this is a topic we've discussed before and we will get to a lot more because we love those movies deep down but thank you for the letter and i hope that uh whatever paper you have to write goes well so you can also send us questions comments to important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and this week on our patreon we're uh taking on the army of darkness <laughs> 
Because we're talking about Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. That's right. And this is, uh, Justin, is it your favorite movie of all time? No, Dawn of the Dead is my favorite movie of all time. Right. It's really close. It's definitely the film that I watched and uh, made me go, hmm, I want to make movies. And on the Patreon episode, I explain exactly the story, which I feel like I've shared on this podcast before, that I became aware of this film. And it's very, very specific. And it's almost been burned into my memory because it's about a big moment of transition in my life. If you want to hear us discuss that, you'll have to check it out on Patreon. It's five dollars a months patreon.com slash the important cinema club so next week we're keeping it classy again aren't we will we will be traveling to africa to discuss the films of usman Semben. now i am not that familiar with his motion pictures beyond the major ones like black girl yeah i mean i took a class in uh, cinema and authorship in undergrad and he was one of the filmmakers that we studied but i haven't really uh, spent much time with him since then so i'm excited to rediscover him hopefully and fall in love with him anew so i think we're gonna watch uh, black girl and we're gonna watch Hala X A L A, and probably a third one. We're gonna we're gonna figure that. I'm out. very excited to tackle this filmmaker as well, especially because it's from a part of the world that we very rarely discuss on this podcast. Too rarely, I I would say. Is that because not enough has been canonized by white academic writing, so it doesn't filter down to us? Or is it just because we haven't been making an effort to see these uh, movies? A little column A, a little column B. So until next week, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We interrupt your program to briefly share some thanks with new patrons of the Important Cinema Club Patreon. These include Jacob Richardson, Matt Stratton, Alex Keyes, Don Pinkton, Lucas LaSamara, Seth Calloway, Chris H., Tim Hadlow, Chad O'Neill, Elliot Jones, Tristan Bass Kruger, Marcus Rose, Daniel Busby, BJ Slive, Andrew Pham, Alan Randolph Jones, Jack Kane, Kyle Davis, Anthony Warb, Buzzkill Squad, Ethan Sturgill, Casey Moore, Jeremy Hawkins, Jacob Vaser, Kale Farnes, and Calvin Vaughn. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do it without you. And if you haven't given us a review on Apple Podcasts, we would very much appreciate it. It is the strength that keeps us going. And we now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Well, I was sad this week to learn of the passing of Nick Zed. For those who don't know, Nick Zed was an underground filmmaker. He was best known for his period in the late 1970s and then throughout the 80s working in New York, kind of in the Lower East side in the arts community there maybe a hundred episodes ago we did an episode on the cinema of transgression and no wave cinema and we talked about a couple of his films there his or one of his big ones was called they eat scum i don't quite know how to describe it i mean it's a it's a punk film it's a very confrontational film it's a comedy an underground comedy that basically tries to just transgress every taboo it can it's not only technically shoddy, but it just has contempt for the idea of technical polish. And it ends with a title card that says, The End, Fuck You. I do encourage people to check out They Eat Scum uh, and all of his films because they have a certain, they have a certain spirit, uh, a certain confrontational spirit that I, I really respect and gravitate to. Would you consider that he's one of the forces that when you were getting into kind of cinema that blew your socks off? You know, I would say so. I mean, I would have seen his films and Richard Kern's films and other of those underground filmmakers from the cinema of transgression movement. I would have seen them when I was in my early 20s. And I would say the lesson that I took from them was just that art doesn't have rules. Like, art can be whatever you want it to be. It doesn't have to conform to any rules of technical polish. It doesn't have to conform to rules of good taste. It can just 
express whatever the artist wants to express and that can be okay. That felt very liberating to me uh, to, to see something like that when I saw it in my early 20s. I think the thing that's the most dispiriting is like these artists that have made such a big impact and that have shaped people like Young Will. Then they have no other recourses as they go on through their lives. Like the fact that, you know, he had to raise money for his... You know, health stuff is such a bummer, man. Like, ugh. I was so sad to see that. He had, he and his family had a GoFundMe to support them. And I don't know, I, I saw the GoFundMe and I kept thinking, like, some institution has to step in. Like, who's going to save Nick Zed? Because, you know, one of the things about being a, a, an underground legend is that your work doesn't necessarily get preserved. You know, if, if you're a countercultural force, and he he remained a countercultural force. He wasn't, he wasn't like John Waters, where he was a careerist. I'm going to go on tour and you love you know my attitude but it's not too threatening (laughs) yeah and like i'm not knocking john waters but i am saying that there's a difference between him and nick zed like nick zed uh, may not have had the most coherent worldview in the world but he was definitely against authority and he remained against authority he remained against bourgeois values i guess it's tragic that there's no kind of like safety net in place for uh, an artist who's important like that who doesn't doesn't play by the rules there's just nothing i was looking and three of his movies he's played at the Museum of Modern Art in 2014, but that was pretty much it. And that doesn't mean anything that like three of his films played. That's not like a big art installation or show. Like how do how does one like that pay the bills unless you become like a teacher of some kind, which it looks like Zed wasn't very interested in. Wouldn't that have been great to have had Nick Zed as your teacher? <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah, universities just pay him to do whatever the fuck he wants. But, you know, time marches on and maybe, you know, the cultural world, they just move past Nick Zed into the world of streaming. Can you imagine if Netflix just gave Nick Zed whatever money that he wanted? Oh, yeah. If he was one of those auteurs who got like a hundred million dollars carte blanche because a streaming platform wanted to make itself legitimate and somehow his name accidentally showed up on a list of like famous auteurs that they yeah, they're like, oh, I like this. Yeah, he showed up at the in the banner on Google at the top and they just clicked on it. Speaking of streaming and it evolving, this is not 100% movie related, but it is related to what me and Will like, which is cartoons. Did you recently see like the kind of rise up in the ca- cartooning force, uh, specifically ones that work for streaming services? No, what's happening? So basically they are, I believe, pretty much non-unionized and that streaming have done those like backhanded things where they pay um, you know, a production studio for a season, but then break it up into multiple seasons so they don't have to pay people for each season of a show and they spread it out over years. That's pretty that's pretty shady. And that's the kind of stuff that like you never really hear about when it comes to this kind of thing. And that, you know, the streaming idea of like, you know, they just get carte blanche. They want to do whatever they want. When in reality, it's like, oh, it's a nightmare. They're doing the kind of stuff that, you know, part time jobs do where they only pay people, um, I don't know, like 36 hours a week. So they don't have to give them benefits if they gave them 40 hours. Hours a week. By the way, is there any parallel that can be drawn here uh, between that and the news that the Oscars are cutting all of those below the line awards from the ceremony? Well, did you see that it's not the Oscars that are um, cutting them? It's ABC is demanding the Oscars cut them or they won't show the show. Interesting. Interesting. Well, the Oscars had a record low rating last year, so I'm not surprised it was ABC who's doing that. How much is it costing ABC to do this one show every year? You know what? At the end of the day, like on a spreadsheet, I'm sure it's 
it's not hurting ABC. But when you have that much money, it's all about perception that when you say like, oh, you know, the Oscars didn't make that much money. Maybe that'll hurt the stocks or maybe it'll just hurt someone's ego. So that's why they're doing it. They want more money. They want to they want to pay less for the licensing fee. They want to get more for advertising. And then when nobody watches the show, when it completely loses all personality and is literally an hour long, they'll go, eh, you know what? We knew it was going to happen. So what are you going to do? Here's what I think. I think they should keep cutting categories and they should cut more and more and more until there are none left. Instead of the Oscars that you've cut everything, you put a rerun of Seinfeld on at the same time slot. Boom. And you know what? It'll probably be even more successful. And, you know, hearkening it back to the Oscars, the Oscars were created as a union busting measure by the studio heads. I actually didn't know this. What's the story behind that? So the Oscars got started by Louis B. Mayer, the lovable head of MGM, because he built a beach house and to keep construction costs down, he hired MGM craftsmen. But then he discovered that it was more expensive than he expected because they had a union uh, that was working at the studio. And he got scared that, oh, no, if other people form a union around Tinseltown, it's going to cost so much money. So what he did is he formed the Oscars. And the whole idea was that he wanted people to be infighting to get Oscars, be focused on that so they wouldn't form their own unions. (laughs) and realized that they could have control themselves. At the first banquet dinner in 1927, he even had people sign uh, a thing to become a member of the Academy. So they get they get better working conditions and the prestige of being associated with an elite organization. 